0: October, Friday the 13th, 1989, Jimmy Wade Martin's body was found on a street in the small town of Bonterre, Missouri. When there are witnesses, a murder weapon, and a taped confession, how exactly does a murder become a cold case? It started at that little
1: bar. This case has not ended by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people on that count's not going to You No, know, rumor has it it was. Big bra, big bar fight. jail. We have been working so
0: hard on this. I can't be silent anymore. You know, like, you know, like, that got
1: like killed here last night. There was rumors going around, like, the next day. We started
0: doing a lot
1: with Facebook. The question is, what happened to Jimmy Wade Martin?
0: From Blueburn Productions, this is Small Town Forgotten. I'm your host, Chris Halsey.
1: You have only, from the beginning, moved forward in terms of building a case. But the only kickback is you haven't quite gotten the prosecutor to file a charge.
0: Thank you for listening. This month of October 2022 marks the 33rd anniversary of Jimmy Wade Martin's murder. We had a moment when we thought, wouldn't it be fitting if we could commemorate his death with the results from the DNA tests? Well, we are still waiting on the results. And since our interview in July with Melissa Gilliam, she lost the primary bid for re-election as St. Francis County's prosecuting attorney. Blake Dudley, a local attorney and former county assistant prosecutor, received the most votes. And because no Democratic candidate is running in this race, he will be the de facto winner in the November elections. I read that one of his campaign promises was to repair what he called the fractured relationship between law enforcement, the public, and the prosecuting attorney's office. And I certainly know a few law enforcement officials who were excited by his election and are looking forward to working with him. What does this mean for our case? I don't know. Although the twins have... We here at Small Town Forgotten haven't heard from Melissa Gilliam since our interview. We have reached out to Blake Dudley and have been told that he is reviewing the case and will get back to us. We are not sure when Blake will take office. We are not sure if Melissa would prosecute the case in the short time she has left, even if she thought there was enough evidence, which, if you remember, she didn't. She was hoping that the DNA would tip the scales. So, we're in limbo. We thought back to the twins referring to their meeting with Melissa as being reasonable and understandable as to why she did not want to press charges when the arrests happened almost a year ago. We thought maybe Small Town Forgotten was being naive, thinking that we had enough to go to trial. Well, it's time for more research. It's time to level up. So our producer and director, Sean Lee Martin, reached out to an old friend of his, a former California Superior Court judge, Robert Leventer, for a recommendation on an expert in the field of criminal law. Someone who, as they say, has no skin in the game. Someone who can educate us and give us an unbiased assessment of our case. Were we heading in the right direction? Do we even have enough evidence to go to trial? Robert introduced Sean to Mark Zavado. Professor of Criminal Justice at California State University in Los Angeles. Before he was a professor, he had a 30-year career as a Los Angeles County Deputy Public Defender with a primary focus on death penalty litigation, and he served as a supervisor trainer of attorneys assigned to handle capital cases. We are so grateful that he took the time to listen to our podcast and have a lengthy conversation with me. I'd like to give our thanks to both Robert Leventer and Mark Zavado for contributing their expertise.
1: My name is Mark Zavado, and relevant to this discussion is the fact that for 30 years I was a public defender, and I spent the bulk of that time working on complex and serious felony cases, and that includes death penalty cases. So that's it in a thumbnail. Okay, great.
0: Yeah, that's impressive. We are, uh, we're obviously new to this, so.
1: Well, you should be given the fact that this is not your career.
0: <laughs> Correct. Just kind of, if you can explain to me, what is the role of a public defender, especially in a murder case such as this? And what is the relationship to the investigators that are bringing charges on the person that you are defending? Is there any relationship there and how are those charges considered and filed?
1: Okay, well, the role of the public defender is basically to provide defense to what are categorized as indigent defendants, which makes up the vast bulk of persons charged with crimes throughout the United States. And it came into being as a result of a very famous case called Gideon versus Wainwright that said that the appointment of counsel to represent defendants who couldn't afford their own attorney had to be far less restrictive than the way it was being employed by the courts up to that point. Um, the Sixth Amendment provides counsel, but the way the uh, courts throughout the country were employing or honoring that Sixth Amendment was very restrictive, usually for only death penalty cases or extremely serious cases. And so the um, this Gideon case made it clear that anybody that was going to be risking uh, deprivation of liberty, was going to be entitled to an attorney if they couldn't afford one. So that's what a public defender does. And like I indicated, that covers a huge percentage of persons charged with crimes throughout the country.
0: Now, in this case particularly, and you've looked through this and listened to the podcast, David Brian White, he went through a handful of public defenders. Why would that happen? in your opinion? I mean, I know that you can't say for sure, but why would a defendant go through multiple public defenders?
1: Well, no matter what, it's an uh, at the, at the, the nicest thing you could say about that is that that's an unfortunate development. Probably the more accurate thing is that that's something that shouldn't happen, particularly with respect to a murder case, that continuity of representation is really important for myriad reasons and there are explanations for why that would happen. The reasons for it oftentimes are actually quite straightforward and bureaucratic. There can be retirement. um, uh, The lawyer who's representing uh, the defendant may actually reach the point where they are retiring before the case is resolved, or as happens oftentimes in offices that have many branches, there's transfers, and those transfers are kind of sometimes on a track that that is inviolable and so the person has to be transferred and it's not, it's not outside of the skill set of lawyers to take over cases that had been handled by other attorneys. But that having been said, I don't know how many lawyers he had and this was over a protracted period of time, right?
0: Yes, this was uh, over a a period of three years.
1: Right now. So um, now one could say three years is a long time for any one lawyer to be sitting in one place, um, handling a case, like I say, transfers oftentimes happen, and retirements happen. On the other hand, with respect to delicate, serious cases, I mean ones where um, there really is stuff that is nuanced and subtle um, or insufficiently resolved, you would work really hard as an as an agency. To keep the lawyer on that case, even if you were transferring the lawyer, you know I, I, it shouldn't happen except maybe once during the, that tour of the tour of duty of that case. Uh, it, it doesn't look like that's right. It doesn't. It, uh, I, now somebody could sit down and give you an explanation about how conscientiously this was done and how there were no options. And if that's so, then my overall reaction to it would be muted. But on this face, it seems like, you know, people get cases. These are difficult cases. Um, there's stress involved. And you have to be careful about um, lawyers who are just fine with the idea that if they let this thing drag on a little bit longer, they know they're going to be transferred or they know they're going to retire and they just assume not do the case. And I'm not saying that's the case here. But I am saying that's a possibility. Sure. Okay. Now you talked about uh,
0: awaiting a, a trial. In this case, he, David Brian White, sat in jail for three years awaiting this um, yeah. this trial, all for it to be for him to be released. A couple days before it was set to go to trial. In your opinion, why would a defendant be held for that amount of time, uh, waiting for a trial on second degree murder?
1: There's a spectrum on which the possibilities uh, can be mapped out. It goes from good faith, but somewhat unduly prolonged to bad faith. So now you said it was dismissed a couple or a few days before it was set to go to trial. I'm guessing here that there probably were other dates set that were called trial dates, but in each situation, they were the case was continued yes but maybe not okay so i mean you could theoretically go from pre-trial to pre-trial to pre-trial over a period of three years and never get around to setting a trial date but constantly waiving time but the odds are there were trial days they set and then they were continued so you ultimately get to what was a one of many trial dates, but the key thing is that it's three years down the line so uh, w- what's possible there it could be that the defense was happy to get every delay that the prosecution and or the court would go along with for one i mean there's one you know kind of standard reason uh, and that would be that the defense often feels that any delay in a serious case will inure ultimately to the benefit of the defense the idea being that the prosecution's case is not generally going to get stronger than it was at the moment they decided they had enough to file the case. But it could get weaker as time goes on. So that's kind of a threshold possibility, although three years would be a very long time, particularly when it turns out that it's a case that's going to be dismissed. If it's going to be dismissed, you have this feeling that if it went on for three years, that whatever it was that caused it to be dismissed could have uh, raised its head Earlier than at the three-year mark, and then you think, well, if the defense wasn't constantly waiving time—that uh, is to say, the defendant has the right to waive the time—but usually it's under the, you know, influence of, of the lawyer as to why it would be a good idea to do that. But if you weren't constantly waiving time, you'd be you'd be forcing the prosecution to put up or shut up. And I'm just, you know, I don't know what was. The flaw in their case at the three-year mark that they wouldn't have had to uh, acknowledge at the two-year mark or the 18-month mark. So there could be you know, a good faith reason to continue because you, you thought it would benefit your client. It could be because you really were working on putting together a very complex and difficult defense or trying to find witnesses that you knew would be critical that have been very difficult to locate. And you didn't want to go to trial until you had them. I mean, that could be a good faith explanation. It could be it was this bureaucratic indifference where lawyers kept getting removed from the case and new ones put on, at which point the new lawyer, and it happens every day, hundreds of times across the country, the new lawyer walks in and says, prosecutor, your honor, I now have a new learning curve. And I'm going to need X amount of time and uh, my client understands that and we're going to ask for a continuance. And the court would be hard pressed not to grant it, although courts oftentimes do say, you know what? And all it's doing is delaying justice here and I'm not going to give you the continuance. You can either bring back one of the lawyers that's familiar with the case or really get up to speed awfully quickly. But the case surely should be prepared and ready for trial by now, in which case continuance would be denied even though there's a new lawyer. But then again, I mean, there's always the fact that, you know, the, the possibility that the defense lawyers just constantly treated it as if they were primarily babysitting and, uh, and not really wanting to roll up their sleeves and dig in and, and make this thing go to trial. But again, in the back of their minds might have been the idea, ultimately, it's going to inure to the benefit of my client. And maybe somebody in, in this case, whoever the attorneys were, including the final one, might have said, Hey, it took every one of these days of these three years of us keeping this thing afloat without going to trial for us to reach the point where they dismissed it, in which case you could say the lawyers did a fine job. But there's the possibility that there were other considerations that had to do with lack of sufficient energy imposed um, from their end.
0: But what, what recourse does a person have that has spent three years of their life locked up all to just say, okay, well, we don't think it was you. You can go on about your way. And I'm sure it happens all the time that that time is just stolen from them.
1: Oh, yeah. And and versions of that happen all the time. So the defendant has an option to manage this to a certain extent all through the pendency of their case because they can simply refuse to waive time. They're entitled to a trial within a certain statutory period. And um, each time they continue the case uh, and, and waive time, there's a new statutory period that comes into play. So all along the line, the defendant could say, I'm not going to waive time. On the other hand, in many of these cases, defendants are quite compliant in terms of the suggestions of uh, the defense attorneys. And, you know, they're not, in, they don't, they're not inclined. Um, they're not built. say the defense lawyer, hell no, I'm not waiving time, and you say you're not ready, well, get ready or whatever. I mean, yeah, that can happen, but very often defendants are compliant. Um, As far as recourse after that is concerned, I wouldn't say that there's no recourse. I would say that that action could be brought against both sides, the prosecution and the public defender's office or whomever The contracting lawyers were, if a showing could be made that basically no one was doing their job in good faith, that the prosecution didn't really believe that they had a case they could take to trial and win, but they still felt this was the best likely suspect in the case. And so they're just going to let it sit and roll over and roll over while they do not very much, but maybe hope something favorable breaks their way. But they really are not in good faith, ready, even though they filed the case to go to trial and they didn't have any reasonable expectation They were going to be ready by the next trial date that was set. Same thing with the defense. If the defense wasn't really preparing the case, if there was no interaction going on, that was creating a sense of urgency as time went by to get this thing taken care of, um, to move it forward. I I would think that there is a recourse. Yeah, there's a standard of there are ethics that have to be complied with by both agencies. The prosecutor has their ethical code and the defense attorneys have their ethical and professional responsibility standards. There is a case that was kind of seminal that came into being just before this 1989 period. It was about 1984, a case called Strickland that set the standards for what effective um, representation was on behalf of indigent defendants or any defendants in a criminal case, actually, and it had a it was kind of a two prong approach that they had, and basically they had to you have to show that the representation was deficient, that is to say, basically that it failed to meet the objective standard of reasonableness, whatever reasonableness would be in terms of defending a, a, a person in a criminal case, and you had it had to add up to ultimately the denial of a fair trial. Um, It wasn't fair because there's stuff that could have been done that would have benefited the defendant that didn't happen. Now, that has to do, generally speaking, with a reversal of a conviction because of ineffective assistance of counsel. But the same kind of thinking would apply to simply saying and going, okay, I spent two more years in custody than I needed to because the prosecution didn't give a damn about really deciding whether they met the standards of going to trial that they set for themselves, which is, can they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a jury? And the defense didn't do any work that put anybody's nose to the grindstone. And uh, we're just happy to ha- keep getting continuances while I languished. I mean, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that's what happened here. Sure. But, but, but yes, I believe there would be recourse to uh, some kind of civil rights violation.
0: You may be wondering why we are asking so many questions about David Brian White's case and what happened. We wanted to establish that it was possible, even more than possible, that a man could be arrested for murder, but that the prosecuting attorney could not have enough evidence to go to trial, yet. We are dealing with two extremes, it seems. David Brian White, who was charged with the murder based on a retracted confession and witnessed proximity to the victim. And then our case, multiple witnesses, and a Game of Thrones-sized book of circumstantial evidence. Sure, you could say that the prosecuting attorney is trying not to make the mistake of the original prosecuting attorney. But to us, and to the twins, it feels more like continued injustice. We know that David Brian White spent those three years in a state of bewilderment not understanding what the case was against him. Yes, he confessed to hitting someone with a timber, but long before his second attorney or his third attorney, he protested that it wasn't the face of Jimmy Martin cursing and coming at him. The evidence doesn't match what he said he did. The evidence does match what we think happened. And his case was dismissed we don't think our case would be. We were free with the details of the case with Mr. Zavado in a way that we cannot be free to talk about on the podcast. I spoke with him for an hour and a half and shared everything we had. Suffice it to say, he was encouraging. As you heard in the clip that started this episode, he felt that the only missing piece was being able to convince the prosecuting attorney to press the charges. When you hear the second half of our interview you too will get a better understanding as to why we are so convinced more than ever that we have a viable case. Are you tired of surface level tips and tricks? Ready to cultivate wellness defined by your own perspective? On the Wellbeing Workshop podcast, we buck the status quo, reject the idea that there's one list for everybody, and explore what it means to live our unique human stories. Join us each week as we host conversations and get curious about how to create authentic well-being. We'll see you over at the Well-Being Workshop. Hello, Small Town Forgotten listeners. My name is Bob Miller, and I'm the host of a podcast I think you'll find interesting. It's called The Lawless Files. Like Small Town Forgotten, The Lawless Files is a scrappy, serial true crime narrative based here in Missouri, just south of Cape Girardeau. My podcast exposes all the lies told by the identical twin who is the state's key witness that put the wrong man in prison and all the ways the sheriff looked the other way. If you've appreciated the work that's gone into Small Town Forgotten, check out The Lawless Files. Let's move on to motive. So what yeah. is motive and what role does it play in a criminal case like murder?
1: Well, Okay, so for the first thing that uh, people need to learn, that motive is not an element of any offense. In other words, in order to prove robbery, you have to prove certain elements exist, each of which exists beyond a reasonable doubt, for it to add up to robbery. Or same thing with murder, first degree, second degree, manslaughter, any type of crime. All of them have bullet point elements that have to be satisfied, the absence of any of them meaning you cannot prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. Motive is never required, but as it's often plain as the nose on people's faces, what a huge hole it is in a prosecution to not be able to show a motive. Even, um, I, you know, one of the interviews that you did was with, with Shane Mills, right? Uh,
0: yes, yeah, Shane Hill, yes.
1: Oh, oh, I'm sorry, is it Hill? Yes. And he said, why the hell would I kill Jimmy when being asked about, you know, what his involvement may have been, et cetera. And that is the ultimate question that a defense lawyer would always want to pose to a jury, particularly in a case that is hugely circumstantial evidence. And that would be, OK, yeah, normally, OK, you could draw this inference, you could draw that inference. OK, it, it would all maybe leave open the possibility that this is a reasonable um, conclusion you're coming to, except. Nothing has been shown to indicate why this person would have done anything harmful to that person. And that's huge. So motive is not an element of any of the offenses that are charged in the criminal justice system, but it is a hugely relevant bit of evidence, ultimately.
0: What about on the, on the flip side of that coin? So um, not necessarily speaking of motive that this person, saying this person didn't have any motive to do it, what if you had another person that had all the motive to do it, but potentially at yeah. that time, all you have is that that person would have motive?
1: Okay. So you're saying there is a third, per- what they might call third person culpability. You're saying there's another person for whom you as a defense, uh, regarding whom you as a defense, can present motive, but you're saying you don't have anything else. That would be any form of corroboration to your showing of that person having motive. In other words, that person hated that person and expressed great animus towards that person. But we don't have anything that shows anyone was anywhere near where the crime happened or that there's any linkage of him with any weapon that may have been. We got nothing else.
0: Let's say that that person was there. They were saw there. Uh, People saw them in that vicinity and they had extreme motive. But that's all you have.
1: Well, right. Now, this, this, this issue of infidelity, right? Is that part yes, of it? or correct. Right. So, that, well, first of all, that is a hugely recognizable motive, all right? So, that is something that you would really want to get in front of a jury because people we'll know that not only is that a motive, but that is in the category of potentially a heat of passion motive. Um, that would cause even a, a normally law-abiding person to reach a, a state of a heat of passion that had not cooled, that you need to show that the hatred was burning, that the passion was burning at the time the crime happened. If somebody, for example, knew that someone had been cheating with their wife, but that's for the jury to decide. That's for, they attribute weight to that. That doesn't have to do with admissibility. Motive would be admissible unless it's pure hearsay and there's you know nothing that would otherwise support it. Now, corroborating that with the person being present at the scene, now you're crossing into territory where you're getting awful close to being a, at least a person of interest, if not a suspect. Just parenthetically, a third person's potential at whom you can try and direct responsibility is pretty much irresistible to defense attorneys. That's the kind of thing that once you become aware of that, you spend an awful lot of time in a very energized way exploring it.
0: Can you give me just a quick rundown of what is circumstantial evidence and how, what role does it play in a criminal murder case?
1: Uh, Yeah. Circumstantial evidence basically is evidence that does not prove a fact, but it creates an inference. So, oh, well, here, here I'll just give you this. You know, You walk in, you have a pool, um, you have a sliding glass door, Uh, you have one guest over at the house, that person is in the pool, you're in another part of the house, then you walk into the living room kitchen area and you see that person standing by the refrigerator. And along the way from the pool on the cement decking and through the living room, hardwood floors, you see water spots. And you see the person sitting, standing in the kitchen with bathing suit on and water dripping, right? Sure. But you didn't see that person get out of the pool and create those water spots on the floor, okay? So that would be very strong circumstantial evidence. If you saw the person walking out of the pool across your floor dripping water, that would be directive. One of the things that is often, you know, like in television shows and movies and stuff like that, it's always supposed to be some big dramatic moment when one of the... uh, parties involved says, oh, their whole case is circumstantial evidence. Yeah, um, that is often often the case. In fact, it may be more often the case than not. But just just so you'll know what the jury instructions generally say about it, about circumstantial and direct evidence is, you're to consider both direct and circumstantial evidence. Either can be used to prove any fact. The law makes no distinction between the weight to be given to either direct or circumstantial evidence. It is for you, the jury, to decide how much weight to give to any evidence. In other words, circumstantial evidence is highly revered um, as a probative type of evidence. And in fact, people are starting to wake up to the fact that it can be much more reliable than direct evidence. If the direct evidence is uh, the person confessed to it, well, there are studies that show plenty of examples of person's who falsely confess to crimes for myriad reasons. But circumstantial evidence, when it's good circumstantial evidence, you ultimately say to yourself, what other explanation could there be that would be rational? And, and so it can be much more uh, tight in terms of cornering a fact as true than even this vaunted um, direct evidence.
0: So, yes, infidelity. During the twins' investigation, they had heard from multiple sources that Jimmy had an affair with a married man's wife. It is hearsay, of course, but hearsay with merit, not just gossip. And we know how sensitive this information is to both families, Jimmy's family and the family of the suspects. We talked to the twins to make sure that they knew that we would be revealing this part of the story. But to get to the truth, we have to go there. Does that make Jimmy a bad person? What if it was also hearsay that he regretted it, that he tried to make it right, that he apologized to the husband, his friend, maybe that very day, that he repented and hoped that he would never do something like that again, hurt another friend like that. But it's not relevant if he was sorry. It's not relevant that he even did it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he and Diane were separated at the time. It doesn't matter that it happens, that it's human nature, that there are millions of people who have made millions of similar mistakes. He didn't deserve to be murdered. His daughters didn't deserve to lose their father. His sisters, his parents didn't deserve to lose their loved one. Killing him, jumping him from behind, beating him to death, was selfish and cruel and a crime. Look, the Colbin Tavern was a local hangout in a town of 4,000 where everyone knows everyone. Everyone in the bar knows the local police. Everyone knows who has a hot temper after a few drinks. And everyone knows who is sleeping with who. This is the information that set the twins, Small Town Forgotten, and this new investigative team in a new direction. Hello, podcast listener. Hope you're enjoying this episode of Small Town Forgotten. When you're ready for a break from the true crime genre, come join us over on Mostly Superheroes, a weekly pursuit for the world's best stories with an emphasis on live-action superhero stuff. I'm your host, Logan. Join me, PC Mike, The Giggler, Scotty Scoop, and Carrie, for a breakdown of all the TV and movies happening each week. Find us at MostlySuperheroes.com and listen where you get your podcasts. Watch us on YouTube and Facebook and enjoy the rest of the show. Let's say um, eyewitness accounts, multiple eyewitness accounts are given that point in a direction that investigators are not going, let's say. Yeah. Okay, I, I'll just say it. So there are multiple people in this particular case who gave statements stating that they saw someone else doing something that night. Yeah. But investigators continued on this vein of David Brian White. Yeah. Now, how how do they, and I know you can't tell me how they justify that, but how could anyone justify not following up on these eyewitness leads? Is it just because of the supposed confession from David Brian White that they just got so tunnel-visioned, or for what reason would would investigators not follow up on other leads?
1: You'll hear their version of why they wouldn't follow up on other leads, and and the versions will ultimately, no matter what they are, ultimately add up to the idea that um, we didn't find them credible. The truth of the matter is that it is a well-recognized um, phenomenon that there are outcome biases that direct institutions as well as people. And so they had decided that they had a guy that was, in their opinion, that maybe a shady character who acknowledged hitting somebody in the head. And so their limited um, scope approach was to just zero in on that guy. and So that's a very common defense thing that is also presented is, look what happened the minute that they had what looked like an easy solve, an easy closed case. They were blind to other indicators. So, I mean, yeah, that happens all the time. And there is, there's no justification other than what they would tell you, which is, it wasn't credible. We weren't gonna expend resources and energy on something. We get, we always have other possibilities whenever we're solving a case, particularly when it involves a group of people at a bar who've been drinking and things got chaotic, etc. So, you know, none of that mattered investigatively. That's what they'll say.
0: Um, Just kind of staying on that, and these are just questions that I'm coming up with off the top of my head that we have asked ourselves. We've been told that some of these eyewitnesses, and these are older people that weren't at the bar that were awakened by all the commotion that saw things Mm -hmm. happening, eyewitnesses from Mm -hmm. that night that didn't change their story for 30 years that have written statements from that night. Are their statements basically null and void at this point?
1: If certain evidentiary thresholds are met, um, you can get in statements that pass a certain degree of muster. But generally speaking, it is not going to apply to written statements that were not subject to either being under oath and or cross-examined. And can their written statements that they simply wrote out
0: Yeah, a a, a slight tweak on that that would not necessarily helpful to the defense, but helpful to the rightful prosecution now.
1: Okay, helpful to the right, not the defense of white, but prosecution of the correct, of the person. Correct. Uh, Now, now, so the issue that you arrive at is the the broad law of hearsay. And hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter. In other words, we're introducing this statement, but we don't have the declarant present, um, and we are offering it to be taken as the truth that is represented in the statement. Um, the law is very cautious about allowing in hearsay statements um, unless there is an exception that applies.
0: The prosecuting attorney at that time declared, and you'll have to help me with this pronunciation. Null mm-hmm. proseci. Yeah. Um, so they declared that three yes. days before the trial. What, what is that, and why would a prosecuting well, attorney do that?
1: Well, it's just a, it's just a, you know, another great. Latin phrase that basically says we have no wish to prosecute, we have no wish to pursue the case. So, so there's a first reaction. The first reaction is that they just they were not dealing in good faith all along, and they finally had run out the string, and uh, they quieted down the community's concern to have the case solved or something, and and they never felt they had enough against him, and and they should have made that decision, you know, six months down the line, not three years down the line. So that's the first reaction that one would have. The, the other reaction, the other possibility that is slightly more comforting would be that they were working like mad all along to put the case together because they were confident this was the right guy and they were confident that there was evidence there that they were going to be able to secure that was going to gain for them a provable case beyond a reasonable doubt. And they finally hit a dead end in whatever track they were following to try and make that happen. And they let the court know and the defense know as soon as they knew. I mean, that's a possibility. Okay. Three years is a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It definitely is a long time for the person sitting there waiting.
1: You need law enforcement include the law enforcement agencies as well as the prosecutor's office at the time that they're finding that the case they have against white is fading and it's going to be dismissed <laughs> that doesn't coincide with there being a determination that murder didn't occur and that doesn't coincide with the idea that okay once we've had the wrong suspect we're we're not interested in finding any suspect and it sounds to me like you feel like along the way, there have been some good faith efforts done.
0: Yes, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. By by the investigators that we are working with now, for like, sure. You, like
1: that highway patrol guy, yes, Crump, they've, it? The,
0: Yeah, Crump, yeah. They've, they've worked their, their
1: butts off for it. Boy, oh boy. I mean, so do you, you have all these reports. You have what is called in the business the murder book. In other words, the, yes. the, the file put together by the law enforcement agency that is prepared for the district attorney's office. And then it's turned over to to the defense that has basically all the witness statements, all the evidence findings of the crime lab, et cetera. You've got that. Yes.
0: We were able to get that um, a few months ago. Um, Jimmy's daughters, Andrea and Angela have built a relationship with David Brian white. And because David Brian white was the defendant, he had access to all of that. They, we couldn't get it because it was an ongoing investigation He was able to get access to that, have those 500 pages of files sent to the um, state prison where he's at, and then the state prison handed them over to us. So, motive. As I said, allegedly Jimmy had an affair with a married man's wife. And yes, that man was reported to have been at the bar that night. In fact... He was reported to have had an argument with Jimmy in the bar and also reported to be at the scene of the crime that night on Mound Street. Remember Occam's razor that the simplest explanation is usually the actual explanation? So let's say that the infidelity was fact and not just hearsay. How compelling would it be to a jury that a man with such a clear motive to kill was in such close proximity to the same victim that he wanted dead. Knowing this now, does that change your outlook on what could have happened? The original prosecuting attorney, Gary Stevenson, has since passed away, and his assistant, David Orzel, does not recall specifics about this case from so long ago. That's what Melissa Gilliam told me in our interview. So we don't know what they were thinking with David Brian White sat in jail for three years only to have his case dismissed. But you can't tell me a poor man, an indigent is what Mr. Zavido calls defendants like him, who had multiple defense attorneys, you can't tell me that he was treated with good faith. When Mark said that potentially they felt that they had quieted down the community's concerns to have this case solved, it struck a nerve with me. Because that's exactly what we are dealing with now. 33 years have gone by, and yes, people are asking us, after all this time, why can't we let it go? So I'll ask you, how long does it take to quiet your concern? How long are you willing to care about justice? How long are you willing to let an innocent person sit in jail? How long are you willing to let a murderer walk free? Because that's what happens again and again in small towns. People stop caring, lose interest, give up. But I'm telling you, if you don't start caring about your neighbors, when it happens to you, just like David Bryan White, and just like Jimmy Wade, you will also be fighting alone next time on Small Town Forgotten. We start digging into the case files, and the twins teach us what you can accomplish when you are not alone. Once the arrest was made, I think he knew that That Angela and I, of course, know. Um, law enforcement No, I think he realizes that he's not looked at as a killer anymore. And I think once he knew our true intentions and... We have kept him in the loop. Here's what's going on. And I think it was just he finally was like, they they want one thing. And I can help them get that. So We've gotten really close, I feel like. Well, I think that obviously when you showed up here with 500 pages of case file, the only person we have to thank for that is David Brian White. Yes. yes. Small Town Forgotten is presented by Blueburn Productions, writer and executive producer Vanessa Martin, creative and executive producer Ashton Hulsey, director and executive producer Sean Lee Martin, and myself. Small Town Forgotten is produced in association with Vagrant Media Productions, Brett Wiley, Jake Delaloy, Caleb Cook, podcast distribution and digital strategy by Logan Janis with Kerrigan Ventures, original music written and performed by Todd Hulsey. For more information, please visit SmallTownForgotten.com. Please like, follow, and subscribe on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Special thanks to the twins, Andrea and Angela, for their perseverance. I'm your host, Chris Holsey. Thanks for listening to Small Town Forgotten.